0: The world is old and the powers are weary. The god at the door of night has fallen and the great enemy of the world has come back from the timeless void. The shadow has awakened the great evils to regain dominion over Ardar. Darkness shall cover the land if not with the deeds of a small fellowship of elf friends. Join the players of this Dungeons and Dragons campaign as they fulfill the events of the Dagor Dagger of Prophecy and strive with Morgoth on the plains of Valinor. Welcome to the Undying Lands in Part 3 of the Inglorian Bastards Trilogy, Childs of the Valor.
1: Well, welcome everybody to episode 127, I can't believe that, um, of what I used to call the Inglorian Bastards podcast. Um, but we have since uh, recently rebranded um, uh, to the Long-Winded One podcast. Um, we will be bringing you... Many different stories here coming up um, in the next few months. Um, we're kind of at, in the tail end of our our Tolkien tales, um, and so I think using either the the long winded one or the Inglorian Bastards at this point is is fairly accurate. Tonight, I'm very excited. Um, I look forward to these nights so much. I have another Tolkien scholar uh, to to speak with us tonight. Um, his name is David Brodman, and he is a hugely active voice in the Tolkien community. Um, he has he's written so many essays and book reviews, bibliographies and reader guides. Um, he was a, he is a former editor of Mythprint um, and, and is a current editor of the Tolkien Studies Journal, which we've talked about a few times, both with Mike drought and Verlin Flieger. Um, he is a um, f- fantasy lover, uh, retired college librarian, and, uh, and believe it or not, this is relevant, uh, a cat owner. And this will come up at the end of our interview. Uh, welcome to the podcast, David.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: So... Um, the way we typically do this, David, is um, you know we we start off with a few questions, uh, kind of like get to know you questions, and then and then we move right into sort of the the meat of of things that you've written, thoughts on you know Tolkien, um, and so we're going to kind of progress through this as the conversation takes us. Um, but I guess the first question I would have for you and for the listeners to hear about would be, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself and and. What, what brought you into the world of fantasy, and particularly J.R.R. Tolkien?
0: Well, you know, when I was a child, there wasn't a fantasy literature publishing genre to be in. I wasn't really aware that most of my favorite stories were fantasy, or that it was a category they could belong to. I enjoyed a lot of books of that kind. Um, A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh was an early favorite. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster. Half Magic by Edward Eager. All of these I had been given as presents by the adults in my life. Um, Ursula Le Guin's Ursie books and Watership Down by Richard Adams didn't come along until later. But more than any of these, I loved a book that I read when I was 11. It was called The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, yeah. It was a lot darker and more serious than my other favorites. But what most appealed to me about it was um, the combination of an exciting story with the breathtaking spread, the breadth and depth of the world that it took place in. It felt as if it existed on its own and that it had been going on long before The Hobbit wandered into it, as Mm -hmm. indeed to a certain degree it had. It was a created world with the feel of the real world. That's a combination that's rarely been matched. So after I read it, I did something that I had not done before. Um, I had been told that there were sequels, with the plural. I was not yet old and wary enough to be aware of sequels. Uh, as the older and more uh, <laughs> uh, more cynical me is uh, became in later years so i got on my bicycle and i rode down to this tiny local bookshop and i bought them the lord of the rings and from that point i was lost to the world
1: like so many of us yes Wow, well I you know, the the depth and breadth of the world that you mentioned, um I think I think we're gonna spend some time talking about that tonight. Um because the the essays that I've read that you that you've written uh speak quite a bit about that. Um but but for now let's let's go on to I, I'm curious um for the listeners to know more about you. Um and so I so I'm wondering, we know how you came to fantasy now, but w- what about these journals that you've been associated with? Um, how did you come to, um, to to be an editor of Mythprint? Was it was it through your involvement of the Mythopaic Society? Uh, was it by attending uh, some sort of conference? Or h- how did you come to be involved with that journal?
0: Yeah, well, um, I think it's a, important how I came to be involved with the society because that was what was so very different from how things work today. After I'd read. The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, what I most wanted to do was talk about him with other people. (laughs) But I lived in this vast, trackless suburb uh, wasteland, and I knew nobody who had read or was interested in these books. This was long before any public internet thingies, at least that were available to me. So I also was searching out anything I could find to read about Tolkien. And eventually, this was... By this time, I was a senior in high school years later. I mean, when you're, you go from fifth grade to high school senior, it's a tremendous, sub. Um, it's not that many years in, in adult terms, but it's a tremendous spread when you're living through it. I, by this time, I found in a catalog listing that a public library some distance away had a run of the Tolkien Journal, which was the fanzine of the Tolkien Society of America. It was already defunct by that time, but I didn't know that. I didn't have a car, so it was quite an effort to get to this library. But when I did, I found from the last issue that they'd handed over their assets to a group called the Mythbake Society. So I wrote them, and they sent me a copy of their news bulletin, Mythprint. Great pun title of a (laughs) name, Mythprint, get it. So from this, I found that they had a book discussion group in my area. Again, I had to move mountains of logistics to get to a meeting, but I finally found myself in a room full of people who had all read The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I was so thrilled that this was 45 years ago, but I haven't left that room since. Within three years, I had volunteered to be secretary of the book discussion group, and in five years, I became editor of Mythprint, which essentially I volunteered when there was a vacancy. And they were happy to get me because people who are willing to do unpaid work for hours on end (laughs) uh, for groups like this are not always that easy to find. Of course, this was all while I was going to college. So it was a very active and expanding time of my life. I was just looking all over the place for things that I could do. Uh, And this was a, a, a place where I could be of actual help to the society because they needed um, somebody to help clean up some uh, uh, the situation that Mythprint had fallen into. It had been um, not been coming out regularly for a while, and they needed somebody who could put it back in order again. And I was willing to do that.
1: And so, how how long um, did you do that with the Mythopaic
0: Society? Well, I was um, uh, I was an officer for about twenty years before I finally retired from it. Um the period that I was editor of of Mythprint was uh 1980 to 1995. And if you know the chronology of Tolkien's posthumous publications that mm-hmm. um, that covers unfinished tales, the letters and almost all of the history of Middle-earth. So if you're editing a small magazine the easiest way to get material is to write it yourself. So I reviewed all these books. I think I was only one of two or three people who reviewed the entire series. Wow. So that gave me the incentive when it was finished to present and publish some scholarly papers, summing up what I'd found in the process. That's what, I, what you say you want to get to. So that brought me to the attention of the Tolkien scholarly community. So that's one thing that led me to the Tolkien Studies Journal. Meanwhile, I was also reading everything about Tolkien that I could get. And um, I think it was in 1987 or so that I had an article published in Beyond Bree, which is another Tolkien fanzine, that was giving quick summary reviews of every book about Tolkien that had ever been published, because wow. I'd read them all. Wow! At that time, there were about 50 of them. Now there's several hundred and fifty. So it was these things that brought me to the attention of the editors of Tolkien Studies. After the journal um, started up in 2004, um, Doug Anderson, who was one of the founding editors, I already knew him well through scholarly contact. He asked me to write annual summaries of the scholarship on Tolkien for the journal based on the previous year's bibliography that they had published. He knew I read this literature, uh, that I could summarize large quantities of it succinctly, which is not a common skill, it turns out. Mm-hmm. And then I could be blunt and caustic while doing it. So I looked through the first issues of bibliography. I saw that I had most of the books listed and that I'd read them all. So I agreed to do it. Um, I called it the year's work in Tolkien studies after a journal called the year's work in English studies, which covers the study of English literature in the same way. And for which Tolkien himself wrote the chapter on language study for some years in the 1920s. So mm-hmm. I worked closely with the editors and then in uh, 2013, I became the third co-editor of the journal, and eventually we worked out a system whereby I can coordinate a consortium of authors to write their work. I compile the bibliography, I divide the works up by topic, and then I hand them off. I write a couple sections myself to keep my hand in, and I put together what everybody else writes. So that's uh, uh, the main thing that I do for uh, Tolkien studies, along with um, uh, editing the review section, and um, helping with the editing of the papers that we publish. Wow
1: that that's that sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> but something that you're passionate about. So in some oh, ways yes. you still you still haven't left that room, the room that you no. mentioned. That <laughs> well, I you know about that room. I, I think that um, it's it's not just the it's not just the writings of Tolkien that that keep people in that room that you mentioned. It's it's the group of people that that tend to read and, and, and study Tolkien, you know, that I've, I've remarked in several episodes where I've just been, I've just been humbled by just the, the, the gracious uh, spirit of, of Tolkien fans um, throughout the world. Would, would you agree with that?
0: Oh, yes. I found Despite the fact that, no, we have problems, we have arguments and so forth, I find working with the people in the Mythopoeic Society and in Tolkien scholarship in general to be generally a rather pleasant thing. I'm also active in science fiction fandom, and I find that also (laughs) pleasant, but a much more prickly environment than, (laughs) um, uh, than Tolkien fandom
1: sure sure so um so i have i have a question so we um i i read a few of your essays um and the the, the first one that i'm going to bring up um was was called the literary value of the history of middle earth um and in in that essay uh, you talked about a number of things um but but something that there was a term that sort of stood out to me, and, and rightfully so, um, it, it comes up quite a bit in, in discussions about Tolkien and his writings. And this is the idea of subcreation, um, and I was—it's—it's it's something that I haven't touched on in my podcast yet, and, and I haven't asked any of our experts about. So I was hoping that maybe you could touch on that.
0: Yeah, you know, um, subcreation was a word that Tolkien invented. I think it was his term for what he was doing when he created his imaginary world, uh, it comes from his essay on fairy stories, which is a sort of manifesto of his creative goals, though it was written before he began writing the Lord of the Rings. The term actually reflects his deep Christian beliefs. God created the world and humans within it in his image. So Tolkien figured if they're created in his image, They'll have the same urges and desires that he does. And God has the desire to create a world. So humans will also have that desire to create. <laughs> Except that as created beings, they'll do his, their creations within his creation. So it's a sub-creation. So Tolkien's actually received some criticism for this from people who think that it's somehow theologically illegitimate for people to act in the imitation of God. But he believed, and he believed quite passionately, that fantasy-making of this kind was a natural and justified human activity. What was vital for him was that the world be believable, and that meant logical consistency, over which he took much care in his own work. Of course, the reader doesn't really believe the subcreated world exists, but if you sept- accept belief for the sake of reading the story, then the subcreation has succeeded. And since the belief exists only within the reading of the fiction, Tolkien called that secondary belief. So that's another term that's also become standard along with subcreation in hmm. a critical discussion of the subject.
1: I guess I'm surprised that people would be critical of this. I mean, it seems human nature to try to describe in in, um, in elaborate form why we are here and in and to create stories for things. You know, well, seems...
0: there is yeah, there is one critic, and I won't name him because I rather, don't want to give him the publicity, who actually wrote a scathing criticism of Tolkien on the grounds that desiring to create another world was an implicit criticism of God's created world for being insufficient and was therefore an insult to God. Tolkien believed it was a credit to God, um, paying homage to God. It's a very different uh, perception and perspective.
1: Absolutely. 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 And some of this sort of came out in, in Tolkien's writings too, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the idea that Aole tried to create the dwarves, right? Is, is, oh, yes. When...
0: Yes. He's a created being he wishes to create. He's waiting for the children of Iluvatar to appear and he can't wait. He's rather like somebody who's um, waiting for the Silmarillion to come out and it hasn't come <laughs> out yet. So they write a Silmarillion fan fiction. <laughs> or something like that. Uh, so Aule creates the dwarves. They are his fan fiction of the Children of Iluvatar. <laughs> oh,
1: that's great. I like that. Um, so let, let's talk about uh, some of Tolkien's creations, right? So let's let's look um, specifically at his writings that he wrote and rewrote. And, and changed over the course of his life. Um, and, and, and you look at some of these things, like, um, I think I talked with Mike Drought about the, the 12 different versions of the tale of Turin Turinbar, um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, some of these look very different and read very different. And in, in, in your essay that I just mentioned, um, you have you have coined sort of three styles, I believe. That, um, and you, you can correct me if I am wrong, but I am going to I am going to try to cover it here. So, there is an analytic uh, style, an antique style, and a pentacle style. I was I was wondering just if, if you could just give us a maybe a brief overview of some of them, and and if you have examples of some of those uh, forms of writing, I'd love to to hear them.
0: Sure. I. If you're going to talk to me in my office, there's going to be piles of literally hundreds of books by and about Tolkien sitting around me in all directions, so I can certainly grab a few of those. Uh, this all comes from the History of Middle-Earth, which is a series of 12 books, well, if you include Unfinished Tales, it's 13 books, uh, that recount not so much the story of the elves in the uh, uh, in the history of Middle-earth itself, but the story of Tolkien writing about them. It begins with his first serious attempt to create a mythology, which is a collection of tales told around the fire by the elves called the Book of Lost Tales, which he began writing when he was... Um, recovering from trench fever during world war one and continues onward to the last notes that he made for himself, trying to sort details out and getting them straight in the early 1970s, just before he died. So that's 60 years of work. Um, And it's all gone through in the course of this. And you can pick out from these various volumes, chunks of readable things. I discuss these styles in, in, in my essay, The Literary Value of the History Middle Earth, because having read all of this stuff, it occurred to me that there was material in here that people might enjoy reading who didn't want to go through the entire thing from end to end. So I was trying to pull it out, pull out the interesting bits, and also to describe them in a literary way to give a sense of what kind of thing Tolkien was writing. This is how I came up with these three styles that specifically limited to the prose sections of it, because I noted that they vary a lot. Um, The Book of Lost Tales, the one that he wrote while he was recovering from Trench Fever, was written in a kind of imitation early modern English style, that was similar to the prose romances of William Morris, which came along a generation before Tolkien, or the style used by Victorians translating early English literature. Except that I think Tolkien's style was more vigorous and colorful. Because it was old fashioned, I called it the antique style. So here's a sample of it from one of the most dramatic moments in the entire mythology. Baron and Tenuviel, later called Luthien, returning from their quest for the Silmaril. In great gloom do they find King Tenwilent, yet suddenly is his sorrow melted to tears of gladness, and Gwendolyn sings again for joy, when Tenuviel enters there, and casting away her raiment of dark mist, she stands before them in her pearly radiance of old. For a while all is mirth and wonder in that hall. And yet at length the king turns his eyes to Beren and says, So thou hast returned, too, bringing a Silmaril beyond doubt in recompense for all the ill thou hast wrought my land, or an thou hast not, I know not wherefore thou art here. Then Tenuviel stamped her foot, and cried, so that the king and all about him wondered at her new and fearless mood. For shame, my father, behold, here is Beren the brave, whom thy jesting drove into dark places and foul captivity, and the Valar alone, save from a bitter death. We think it would rather fit a king of the Eldar to reward him than revile him. Nay, said Baron. the king thy father hath the right. Lord, said he, I have a Silmaril in my hand even now. Show me then, said the king in amaze. That I cannot, said Baron, for my hand is not here. And he held forth his maimed arm.
1: That's beautiful, but I can so, see where you got the antique name.
0: <laughs> yes, so I find it. Um, this style to be, for the most part, very readable, despite its um, heavy use of antique constructions, so he says, and instead of if, for instance. But there was also a lot of usages of similar styles, even in The Hobbit, um, though they're not so conspicuous there. So in the 1920s and 30s, Tolkien took his prose narratives into a different style which I called the Annalistic style, because it was most typical of works he called the Annals, which were chronological accounts of the events of the Silmarillion, and they were modeled this time after genuine early English historical documents called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. The Chronicles are highly valuable historical documents, but they don't make gripping reading, and the same is often true of the Annals of Tolkien's, which tend to be a bit dry, fussy, and distant. Much of the Silmarillion as we have it is in this style, which is why Mm -hmm. some people find it rather difficult to read. However, that shows the style at its best. At its worst, it sounds like this. But as for the years of the trees and those that came after, one such year was longer than nine such years as now are, for there were in each such year 12,000 hours. Yet the hours of the trees were each seven times as long as is one hour of a full day upon Middle-earth from sunrise to sunrise, when light and dark are equally divided. Therefore each day of the valour endured for four and eighty of our hours, and each year for four and eighty thousand, which is as much as three thousand and five hundred of our days, and is somewhat more than our nine and a half of our years." Anyway, you get the idea.
1: I, yeah, it's 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 like he was uh, taking notes.
0: Yes, this someplace. is like one of a one of a number of places where Tolkien gets kind of bogged down in what he's writing about, and he can't get out. There is a classic case of this in the Lord of the Rings itself, and you find this from reading the um, uh, the drafts of the Lord of the Rings that are incorporated into the history of Middle Earth when Tolkien got to the spot where Gandalf and Theoden find Merry and Pippin sitting in the ruins of, of Isengard, Merry starts burbling away about um, uh, hobbits and, and their pipeweed because Theoden is interested by the fact that the hobbits spout smoke from their mouths, which he hadn't seen before. And he goes on and on and on about it, and Gandalf interrupts him to stop it? Well, Gandalf is actually interrupting Tolkien because Tolkien <laughs> had written so much about this that he realized he'd gone away from himself. And most of the material on pipeweed in the introduction, the prologue to the Lord of the Rings, is transferred there from the ruins of Isengard because Tolkien realized that he'd run away with himself. And that's uh, what's going on here with the calendars. So after writing the Lord, the, the Lord of the Rings, and essentially teaching himself how to write a long and full adult narrative, Tolkien began to use a much clearer natural and flowing style that he developed, especially in the appendices to that book, the the nonfiction style narratives about the history of Gondor and such places. So I call it the appendicle style. So here from Unfinished Tales is a bit from the um, Encounter of Aldarion, the crown prince of Numenor, with his betrothed, Erendis. Aldarion is a mariner, um, and he is always going away on voyages, so Erendis misses him terribly. But the other thing that concerns her is she loves trees for their own sake, whereas Aldarion loves them because he can grow them and then cut them down to build ships with which doesn't really appeal to Arendis very much, because not only does it hurt the trees, but it also takes him away from her. So they come to a nice peaceful spot in the middle of the Isle of Numenor. There Arendis spoke to Eldarion and said, Here could I be at ease. You shall dwell where you will as wife of the king's heir, says Eldarion, and as queen in many fair houses such as you desire. When you are king, I shall be old, said Erendus. Where will the king's heir dwell meanwhile? With his wife, said Aldarion, when his labors allow, if she cannot share in them. I will not share my husband with the lady Uinan, said Erendus. Uinan, I should add, is the Maya of the oceans. Hmm. That is a twisted saying, said Aldarion. As well might I say that I would not share my wife with the lord Oromë of forests, because she loves trees that grow wild. Indeed, you would not, said Erindus, for you would fell any wood as a gift to a if you had a mind. Name any tree that you love, and it shall stand till it dies, said Aldarion. I love all that grow in this isle, said Erindus. So that should be enough to convince you that <laughs> is the greatest female character Tolkien ever wrote. It's a shame that most people have never heard of her.
1: Well, I, I'm kind of wondering. I mean, you've probably had this discussion with somebody. The, the new series that's going to come out on um, Amazon, I, I'm wondering if it won't follow Aldarion. I think well, that would be a, yeah, a rich topic.
0: It might. Um, and I have no idea what it's going to be about. Uh, except that somewhere they have drawn a line and it's not exactly clear where it is as to what they're al- uh, a line across the timeline of Tolkien's legendarium. Um, as to what they're allowed to use and what they're not allowed to use. But certainly there's a lot of room in the Second Age to tell stories about, and the story of Aldarion and Arendis is the longest and most detailed and most novelistic story that Tolkien wrote about that period of his history. So I think it would make a very good movie if somebody had the wit and the taste to do it in a way that was respectful of Tolkien.
1: Absolutely absolutely and they would take a uh, a lot of flack if they were not respectful <laughs> yes <laughs>
0: um
1: so so you mentioned uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned um unfinished tales in Aldarion. um it's actually what i wanted to transition to now um so believe it or not unfinished tales the um the book that i have here in my hand right now that <laughs> that has not come up on the podcast either and uh, and i'm i'm curious it has kind of um I don't know. It has some similarities to, to the you know the histories of Middle Earth that we've talked about. It seems like maybe you drew some parallels to the um, the twelfth book of the history of Middle Earth called the Peoples of Middle Earth. But I'm curious what what really sets Unfinished Tales apart from from some of the other books of the histories of Middle Earth.
0: Well, um, Unfinished Tales came out before the History of Middle Earth did, and that's uh, I think an important point. So, Christopher Tolkien was appointed his father's executor. And so when his father died in 1973, uh, his son was faced with this vast array of his father's manuscripts. And the big question was how to excerpt and arrange them for publication. So the first thing he knew is that he had to publish a book called The Silmarillion because he had been waiting for it for 20 years since it had been first mentioned in the appendices to The Lord of the Rings. So... He did that by taking the latest versions of the stories uh, of that period of Midler's history and basically arranging them. Taking a snapshot of the latest versions of each one, some of which were quite recent, some of which especially near the end of the story, dated back to the 1930s before a major recasting of the mythology had been done. So we had to tinker with things a bit and also fill in some holes um, in order to get a continuous narrative about it. But the continuous narrative aspect of it was essentially a recreation. But there were also a lot of other stories, most of them either ancillary works or else um, more detailed coverages of material that, he, that the Silmarillion didn't cover in that much amount of detail. They didn't want to jump back and forth within the text of the Silmarillion that were completed, or that were polished as far as they went, even though they weren't finished, thus unfinished tales. Hmm. And he thought that this would make some useful reading. So he put this together as a collection of the juicy bits, the most polished and most completed stories that were written after the Lord of the Rings had been completed, which meant they were mostly consistent with it in terms of the facts of the subcreation they didn't need further explanation so they could be read by people who didn't want to go any further. And what's more, they're the ones that had the answers to the sub-creational questions that people most wanted to know. This mm-hmm. is the book that tells you who the other two wizards were and it gives you the chronology of Numenor and the map of Numenor and all of that stuff that you want to know. Um, some of it uh, taken from essays. It also contains the f- version of the Narn, which is the story of Turin Turambar from the Silmarillion and the tragic tale of him and his parents and sister, um, in more detail. This was eventually taken back out of Unfinished Tales, repolished, and other sub uh, material added to it and published as a book called The Children of Hurin.
1: Hmm, um, yes.
0: So... Unfinished Tales is like a pre-existing volume 13 of the history of Middle-earth, fuller material, which goes along with the more fragmentary ones that were left behind for parts two through four of the Peoples of Middle-earth. Part one of the Peoples of Middle-earth is a consideration of the appendices to The Lord of the Rings, most of which were written after The Lord of the Rings itself had been finished.
1: The uh, the thing that sticks out, the thing I remember most about Unfinished Tales were the the juicy details of uh, Galadriel, Celeborn, and uh, Celebrimbor.
0: (laughs) Yes, that part is a little bit different from the other, because Tolkien never entirely established who, especially Celeborn, who Celeborn actually was and how they fit into the mythology. Galadriel and Celeborn were created in the writing of the Lord of the Rings, and then they had to be fit back into the Silmarillion. That was one of the changes in the structure of the story that Tolkien made after he wrote The Lord of the Rings, and he never quite completed that. So Christopher Tolkien tentatively stuck his toe out in showing you a part of the history that had never been definitively established. That's the only place in Unfinished Tales where he does that. The history of Middle Earth, however, is full of that. It begins with, a, with the Book of Lost Tales, which contains the same stories and some of the same characters, but the names are different. The events are different. The type of things, they are, are different. Baron is an elf rather than a man, for instance. Yeah. Um, and so many um, uh, other things are entirely different. The style of everything happening is different, as you could tell from that excerpt that I read. Um, of Baron and Luthien uh, encountering uh, her father and uh, uh, so you're plunged right in, in that case in, with the history of Middle-earth you are plunged totally into the fact that this is a created world that Tolkien is working out as he writes and once you do that you can no longer really think of it as something that actually might exist out there it is the act of a writer inventing it. And since I think the greatest thing about it is that it was the creation of a single writer, it's helpful to bring that fact out.
1: Wow. So. Yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, that's great. I, I'd like to... Um... I'd like to switch gears to uh, one of your different essays. Uh, This one's really fun. Um, Not that the other one wasn't fun, but this one is called um, Top 10 Rejected Plot Points from the Lord of the Rings, a Textual Excursion into the History of the Lord of the Rings. And now there's a a lot in here, like uh, things like um, the... There, there's a fight with the character named Sharky. You have uh, you have things like Boromir uh, betraying, um, going going farther and actually betraying Aragorn. Treebeard kidnapping Gandalf. Aowen uh, mar- marrying Aragorn. These are these are all things mentioned in, in this article. Um, ha- however, the th- the thing that actually stood out the most and and, and just really touched me. Um, was a description of elven magic that, that you talk about in this essay. Um, and and you're, you're welcome to talk about some of these other things that I mentioned too. But 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 really, um, I'd, I'd like to quote you in quoting both Sam and, and Frodo here. Um, you mentioned um, when Sam says, uh, speaking of magic, it's right down deep where, where I can't lay my hands on it in a manner of speaking. You can't see nobody working it. And then Frodo says, um, you can see and feel it everywhere. And then you go on to say that is the essence of elven magic. It is there and you can feel it, but not measure it. There is no clever gold watch or a man behind the curtain. And I just thought that was a, that was just a such an excellent way to describe the feeling of magic in, in this world and this room that you talked about that we're in and, and and you know we've all read fantasy. Uh, some of us have played Dungeons and Dragons. I know you mentioned you had uh, briefly played some Dungeons and Dragons. Some of these stories and and some of these worlds are the magic is just like right out there. It's like right, right in your face. And and in in Tolkien's world, you know sometimes in the role playing community we would we would say that Middle Earth is low magic. But but in thinking more about it, I I think it's not low magic. I think the magic is everywhere. But it's. It's just not right there in your face, and so, so I'm yes. curious. I've talked a lot about it already, but but th- these are your words, and I'd like you to talk about it if you wouldn't mind.
0: Yes, uh, that's actually the only really serious section of the paper. I it had occurred to me that there were so many ideas that Tolkien spun off while he was working on the Lord of the Rings, some of which were pretty dreadful, um, or even comical. And to quote, as I did in my paper, um, the first scholar to study Tolkien's manuscripts for the Lord of the Rings, which are kept at Marquette University in Milwaukee, uh, Richard West, who said, if we pick them out of the trash heap, it is only to show how wise the author was to throw them there. And <laughs> that was, right. what was what I was doing in, uh, in this essay. But the point in particular, Tolkien had imagined originally that Time doesn't just seem to stop in Lorien, it actually does. Our heroes just refresh and recuperate for some timeless period and then go on from exactly the point that they did before. And that in fact is the reason why in the final version where that doesn't happen, magic is not that explicit. It turns out that they spent a month in Lorien even though it felt like only a few days. And the reason it's a month is because that way Tolkien could continue with the story as he'd already written it without having to worry about changing the phases <laughs> of the moon, which was a big thing that he had in mind for keeping track of where the story was in terms of its timeline. So as far as using the magic is concerned, what the way Tolkien differs from so many fantasy authors is that he doesn't treat magic as a branch of engineering. Uh, A lot of science fiction writers do that. They are used to science fiction engineering, so they write fantasy with um, engineering-type magic. And you see that in authors like um, L. Sprague de Camp and um, uh, others of the Unknown Worlds School. And you also see it in a lot of other magic ways. For instance, in Harry Potter. In Harry Potter, you cast a spell, and it happens automatically. Or... If it doesn't work, something has gone wrong, which you can diagnose and fix, like a mechanic fixing a car. Tolkien doesn't do that. For a wizard, Gandalf casts very few spells. (laughs) He leads, and he doesn't always know exactly what he can do to do it. He leads by exhortation and inspiration and not by zapping Sauron with mighty bolts, although he probably could do it. For one thing, He's forbidden from winning his side's battles for them. That's not what he was sent to do. The people that he leads must put forth their own supreme effort. But if they do, he and the Valar will help them. You can see this particularly in Frodo's journey in Mordor. He can't, you know, just waft to the mountain without effort. But if he puts forth his utmost, his fate will come to his aid. And you can see that happening. So the clearest statement of Tolkien's view of magic comes from Galadriel. So Frodo and Sam are in Lorien. Sam asks her to show him some elf magic. By magic, he means something that would be supernatural to a hobbit, the way we would use the word. But this definition doesn't make any sense to Galadriel because it classes her mirror with the deceits of Sauron. To her... Those are totally different because of their purpose. She's not out to deceive. She's out to keep, preserve her land and to preserve its wonderment. To her, all the elves' activities are for that purpose, whether they would appear supernatural to a hobbit or not. You see this in the result because there's no real line between magic and not magic. Is Galadriel's rope, for instance, magic or not? It's hard to tell. They also have to create an atmosphere, a realm of beauty and wonder, and they have many skills to achieve this. That's what Tolkien was trying to convey. He was not trying to write a story about magic. So,
1: Wow. I, you know, I I've, I felt bad the whole time you were describing this, that I, that I took the one serious thing out of your article and focused on that. But it was something that, that I've been trying to figure out the whole, you know the whole time reading the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and, and being immersed in this world. It's just, you know, it's, it seems, it seems that magic in terms of elven magic is, is caught up in, um, you know, historic knowledge and language, you know?
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, uh, I think that's a very important thing. In studying a lot of the fantasy, you know, um, there's a standard definition of, fantasy that it's stories with magic in them and i find when i look at many of the great fantasies yes they have magic in them but very few of them are about magic they don't put the magic in the center it's just something that happens to happen um, along the way it's part of the setting it's part of the background the mise scene and it's not what the story is about in in most of these cases and okay. the same is true if you, you know define a high fantasy as one taking place in an imaginary world. Again, they do take place in imaginary worlds, most of them. Some of them it's a little hard to tell. A story like um, The Once and Future King or Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast don't really qualify by that account, but most people consider them high fantasy. Hmm. But they... Um, even if they do take place in imaginary worlds, it's not usually about the world as such. Although in Tolkien's case, you could say that it is. Um, And he is definitely creating both this deep sense of time and this sense of place that are both very critical to his work.
1: Hmm. Well, um, I think that is an excellent uh, transition point as I am going to talk about time and place here now and I have a question for you. This is where this is kind of where in the in, in the interview I'm going to shift to Things that happen in in the storyline from from my podcast, and and this is also where we can have a lot of fun, where you can you can choose to go on a journey with us and sort of talk about your your beliefs uh, um, and, and whether something is plausible or not. And again, my feelings won't be hurt if what I'm saying is not plausible. But this particular time and place that I'm choosing to talk about is is about um, a creature that the, the characters are going to meet soon, named Ungoliant, and you're going to say to yourself. Hmm, that's very strange because Ungoliant's been gone for a very long time. <laughs> um, and so, and so, I guess at this point in the story, um, as as we know, you know, Ungoliant sort of uh, soiled the two trees and the wells of Varda, and then grew to this huge size and sort of took off and uh, scared Morgoth quite a bit. <laughs> and and it is said, I, I believe, that she either sort of, um, because of her great hunger, devoured herself or, you know, headed south somewhere, maybe the Darklands, uh, where she, um, you know, had a foul offspring like Shelob, possibly. Um, and so at this point in, you know, my my characters are doing what we call the trial of the Valar, the trials of the Valar, where they're, they're sort of um, each, each Valar has a particular task for the characters to do in order to bring about this last battle, the Dagger Dagorath. And one of the things that they must do in order to rekindle the two trees is to fill the wells of Varda. And um, and one way to do that would be to sort of reclaim that from Ungoliant. At least so goes my story. And so the thing that I wanted to ask you, um, just as a as a as a very knowledgeable um, scholar in in Tolkien's legendarium, is is this something that um, is, is the fate of Ungoliant definitive? Is is this something that could happen? Um, And, and anything else you want to add to this?
0: Yeah. To speak specifically about that. I think that one of the great things about Tolkien's world is that like the real world, it's not completely known. There are loose edges and blank spots. What, The Silmarillion actually says about Ungoliant, I looked this up, it says, Of the fate of Ungoliant, no tale tells. Yet some have said that she ended long ago when in her uttermost famine she devoured herself at last. But just because some have said something in Tolkien doesn't mean that it's true. Tolkien actually wrote some stories that were mannish misunderstandings of what the elves had told them his mythology was that layered and complex, that these stories are erroneous within the invented universe, but they're what some people thought. Mm-hmm. I think it's vital to the flavor of the story that we don't know some things. They're a mystery. Tom Bombadil, for instance, it was created specifically as a mystery. If you go around saying, oh, well, he's clearly the Vala Aule or something, <laughs> you have missed the point. We don't know what Bombadil was. He just is, as Goldberry says of him. Um, as far as Ungoliant concerned, it says no tale tells her fate, and that's an end on it. But that doesn't prevent you from speculating. I think you could go either way with Ungoliant if you want to come up with something for your own story. She is so ravenous that it is imaginable that she could have eaten herself up. Like that sucking monster in the film *Yellow Submarine*, you remember? <laughs> which just sucks up everything, finally ending with itself, and finally goes, and it's all gone. Um, or she could be in some sort of stasis, like the Balrog of Moria was for millennia. In which case, like the Balrog, she could reappear. So watch out. So um, you could do uh, you could do either of those things with it. That's part of the fun thing about creating. Um, Uh, something in Tolkien's universe, that there's room to do that. And the mistake is to think of things that are too limited. I once read a um, uh, uh, critique of the characters in the invented world, not of Tolkien writing it, but of the invented world itself, which criticized the White Council for not having realized earlier that the necromancer in Dol Guldur in The Hobbit was actually Sauron on the grounds that who else could it be? And it seemed to me that that argument was a complete misunderstanding of what Tolkien is trying to create. Tolkien's world can't be limited by what fits on a tabletop for a role-playing game. Uh, There's all kinds of things going on that we don't know about. And the fact that we don't know all these things is essential to it. This is part of what I meant when I said earlier that it feels like things have been going on in The Hobbit before Bilbo arrives. The characters just ha- haven't been just sitting there waiting for him to show up. They've got their own things to do, and we don't know really what those are necessarily. Um, and what uh, Bayorn or the Elven King is doing is... Um, Beyond that, and even things that Tolkien's includes is are not always mentioned. A criticism that I've read often of The Hobbit in recent years is that Bard, who slays the dragon, doesn't appear in the story until the dragon slaying. That's mm-hmm. not true. He does actually appear earlier on. He's referred to as a grim-voiced man. His name isn't given at that point. But the, it's the fact that his name isn't given that causes people to miss that it's him. Hmm. But he is later identified as the grim-voiced man who had spoken earlier. So um, it's, uh, there are things that are not necessarily obvious. There are you know, minor characters who wander around and pop up here and there that you might not necessarily know about.
1: Well, if uh you know some of the things that you've mentioned, you know, you're absolutely right, right? This is a this is a vast world. It'd be like in real life trying to to guess all of the things that are happening, right? And it's it's impossible to do that. But in my story, <laughs> I I will be trying to explain some of these things.
0: For your own story, you can do it any way you want because it's your story. And you no. Know, um you, as long as you're not Confusing it with Tolkien's, or taking it for Tolkien's, or thinking that you found the answer to Tolkien's mysteries—oh, sure—you sure. can do you can do what you want. And I think that uh, um, now that's one of those things that it brings people out the impulses to to write things. Um, I am not a storyteller by nature; I'm a scholar by nature, so it leads me to want to write about it rather than to create stories. I'd rather read other people's stories. They're better storytellers than I am.
1: (laughs) And I'd rather read the things that you've written to inspire me to write. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's go on to the next question. So I I mentioned that you were a cat owner at the very beginning. um, And I I did some research on you um, and you have multiple cats, uh, some of which with very interesting names. Uh, and I am also a, a pet owner. Uh, my dog's name is Melian, after obviously Melian. Um, my, one of my cat's names is, is Shadow, after my favorite character from American Gods. Um, and we have a, we have another cat called Jon Snow, who my kids refer to as Snowy, uh, which is obviously from Game of Thrones. And I was wondering, um, before our last question, this is going to kind of segue into our last question, could you tell us quickly about your the cats that you have now and where their names came
0: from? Yeah, um, well, we have at any given time only two cats, and I like to say that it's to keep them from outvoting us. Um, <laughs> but really, you know, taking care of cats is, uh, especially when the cats want lots of attention. So, um, so my wife and I are great readers, and we have always given our cats literary names. Um, currently, we have Tybalt which comes from Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. He in turn is named for Tibbert, the king of cats in the fable Reynard the Fox, which is why other characters in Romeo and Juliet make cat references about him. Uh-huh. Our Tippold our is a lively and active little guy, so we thought it an appropriate name. And we have Maya, who's named for one of the Pleiades, the star cluster, the one who comes down from the heavens to do her Christmas shopping in P. L. Travers, Mary Poppins. It's not in the movie. <laughs> um that's my favorite chapter in the book actually and our maya arrived just after christmas so we gave her that name
1: do you have any names picked out for any future cats or do no, we'll, you just yeah, base it we'll on wait, personality we'll,
0: we'll wait and see what uh happens to hit us at the time uh you know past things and we did have a cat named pippin once from the lord of the rings and you mentioned you have a cat named shadow when i was in college i had a cat named Shadow, which was named by my roommate after uh, Moonshadow, the Cat Stevens song.
1: So, Well, so the reason I bring this up is because the characters uh, in my story have just um, met uh, with a very old Queen Beruthiel and her cats. Mm. Um, And and so in my story, again, I'm not trying to, I've been very careful um, to make sure I don't step on anything that Tolkien had actually set in stone. Um, but but some of these little um, you know Easter eggs or, or breadcrumbs that that Tolkien left out there, I tried to nibble and gobble those up in some places. And and so in my story, after Queen Beruthiel is kicked out of Gondor, um, in my story she doesn't make it back home. She she in, uh, ends up finding the 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 part of Numenor, uh, the highest point called Tarma. Uh, which is sticking up above the water, and and there, she is. Um, she has found a, a, a part of a white tree or a sapling of one of the white trees, and um, believe it or not, um, the axe of Tuor. Um, and so the characters go there and they meet her. Um, so I, the, the reason I'm I, I don't have to ask you. There's not much written about Queen Beruthiel, um, but but I'm but I'm wondering if you could uh, tell me what, what what do you think Tolkien's thoughts were on um, <laughs> of cats in general uh, in, oh, in yeah. relating them. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. I know well, you have uh, thoughts on this.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I should say first that um, uh, the reference that uh, Aragorn makes uh, to the cats of Queen Beruthiel, and I think it's the Mines of Moria, is. One of the very few things that Tolkien just threw off at the time without any idea of what it actually was or where it fit into his mythology was only later on that he figured out that Peruthio was an early queen of Gondor. Um, So as far as the cats were concerned, um, Tolkien was a dog person, obviously. Um, He's on record as not liking cats and especially Siamese cats. Um, so yeah, for instance, um, in the Silmarillion, Hugh and the Hound gets all the good press. And, um, uh, if you read the, uh, uh early version of the book of lost tales, where there is the evil prince of cats called Tevildo, um, yeah. he gets all the bad press and so does Beruthiel. Well, I'm used to that. Actually. I grew up on Disney and Warner brothers cartoons, which have the same bias against cats, um, <laughs> uh, but- Many Tolkien fans are cat people, so we just live with this. Um, I still like the great scenes in the Book of Lost Tales and Tavildo and his thanes lounging around their palace, um, being very cat-like in a uh, uh, rather negative way. So it's in a way, it's not surprising. Tolkien expressed a lot of his own taste in his fiction. In particular, he gave some of his own taste literally to hobbits, for instance, including loving mushrooms. Yeah. So Tolkien picnics are full of mushroom dishes. I don't like mushrooms. I agree with you. <laughs> and sometimes people give me odd looks. So maybe I'm not such a real Tolkien fan after all if I don't like mushrooms. So when that comes up, I say, how many of you smoke tobacco? Because that's another rabid hobbit taste. But few of these people do. So that quiets them up real fast. You don't, have to, <laughs> you don't have to like everything that Tolkien liked. Uh, so it's, uh, it's okay to be different from him. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, Tolkien was very picky on a number of things that, uh, don't seem to bother his fans very much at all. Um, when, um, uh, the, for instance, the hobbits in the Lord of the Rings movies are Irish peasants rather than, um, English and that would have bothered Tolkien very deeply. But I don't think it bothers very many people who see the movie. Ah, uh, so. yeah.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Well, David, I've kept you for probably almost an hour at this point. Um, and I want to just thank you for, for having this discussion with me. Um, and it's been, it's been really great. Um, is there anything that um, you'd like to mention, things that you have coming up, things that you're excited about? Um,
0: Well, uh, it's been announced that um, I'm to be the Scholar Guest of Honor at uh, the next MythCon, the Conference of the Mythopaic Society, which was going to be this summer, but it's been postponed till next year. And uh, that's uh, that's quite an honor. Many of the people that you've interviewed so far have been... uh, Guests, or uh, that you have coming up, or going, have been guests of honor at MythCon at one time or another, and it's an honor to be in their company. And I would certainly hope that uh, some of your listeners might be interested in coming uh, next uh, July to the university. Uh, Actually, it's not at the university; it's sponsored by it, to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, where MythCon is going to be, because I find it always a grand and glorious gathering of um, people who love Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis, who is also uh, one of our special interests, and um, a great place to have conversations in real time with people. So once we're all allowed to get back together again in person in real time, uh, this is the first thing that I'm planning on going to.
1: I will put the link to that event in this description. So, um, and if I can make it, I
0: will be there. Okay. All right, okay. David. Well, that would be delightful. Okay. Thank you
1: so much for coming, David. Sure thing. Good night. Good night. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on until next time. Join us at longwinded.one one and consider giving us a review on Apple music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.